0: Matthew chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 1 to get our context. I'll start preaching at verse 7. Would you please stand out of respect to God, whose word we now read. Matthew 3, 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent! Let me pause a moment. Repent is a military term right about face. Military term in the Roman army, right about face. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. At that time, Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. As they confessed their sins. Now where we start today. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. He said to them. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore. Produce fruit consistent with repentance. And do not assume that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Our Father, thank you for the Bible. Now help me not to mutilate it or to misspeak it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse six, verse seven, rather. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, now they are religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they will be a major part of the crucifixion of Jesus. They're very legalistic, they have lots of rules. We make rules to make religion easy. Always remember that. If you're kind of a legalist, you like rules a lot. Remember one of the reasons you decided to do that is because it makes your life easier. I followed a pastor one time who said no caffeine drinks in the building. It made it easy for him to decide not Pepsi or Coke or whatever else. He didn't have to make any decisions about drinks because he said no caffeine. See, rules make things easy. Be careful. Be careful in your rules. Remember, some of the most religious people who ever lived in the history of the world are the ones that crucified Jesus. I'll say it again. Some of the most religious people in the history of the world are the ones that crucified Jesus. Be careful. Your rules do not necessarily prove that you're closer to God. They don't give you some inside track. Be careful. So here they are, the Pharisees and Sadducees, very religious, keep all the rules, make up new rules. He said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, vipers are poisonous desert snakes. It is interesting. These are the men that everybody in Israel looks up to, the Pharisees and Sadducees, because they're so religious. But John the Baptist wants all these thousands of people who have come to him from Jerusalem and Judea. He does not want them to use these guys as their role model. So he rebukes them. In front of the crowd don't 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 try to be like these guys and he says you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come in other words, he says why are you here what what are you afraid of there is a wrath of god to avoid but why are you here he and if you really want to avoid god's wrath here's what you need to do which brings us to verse eight therefore What are you supposed to do when you see a therefore in the Bible? You mean I have been your interim three months and I've not told you this yet? Thank you. That's a second Baptist voice I heard. Is that a second Baptist (laughs) voice? When you see a therefore in the Bible, you see what it's there for. Is this the first time I've said that here? I'm failing you. Cut my pay. That's a joke. All right. But anyway. All right. Therefore. And I said, do you want to flee the wrath to come? All right, okay. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. In other words, the only reliable way to know that you're going to go to heaven when you die is to be living a holy life. That's it. You can say all day long you walked an Nile, you prayed a prayer, you got baptized, you became a church member, You can say all day long those things. They do not prove you are saved. That's the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews. The whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to say the only way you can know you are saved is by looking at your life right now. You you have to judge yourself now. Outwardly confessing sin and shedding tears are never enough. Uh, Some tears that fall from eyes are like water coming out of a rock. The rock is still a rock. A person can weep while their heart... Remains hard. If you are truly born again, your life will bring forth fruit. You will live consistent with repentance, with a right about face. You will prove by your life that you made a turn. You were going one direction. You repented. You did a right about face. And you went the exact opposite direction. If you are saved, your life will look like it. I love a story from the days of horse and buggies. In The days of horse and buggies, there was a man named Thomas Olivers who has one of the greatest stories of a changed life I ever read about. Thomas Olivers was a businessman who made a fortune cheating people. He would borrow money and then he would figure a way to defraud, to get out of his debts. He would do work for people. He would cut corners. He would cheat. And then... He would brag on it how that he made money off the ignorance of other people when he became a christ follower his uncle did not believe that he was saved as he watched his nephew change he said he was so bad not even god could do that he must have seen the devil he did not believe that his nephew had gotten saved but he had gotten saved and his life was totally transformed this is what john is talking about here If you want to be right with God, you're going to give a life. You're going to live a life that gives evidence in your daily life that you have been changed. Thomas Olivers decided to go to zero. He said everything that he had in this world, he had stolen. He gave everything he had away, got down to nothing. He bought a horse. And decided to go back to every town where he would work and swindle people. He was a shoemaker and he would go from town to town, his horse and buggy and cheat people and borrow money and not give it back. All kinds of things. So he got him a horse and he started going to every town that he had ever been a shoemaker in. He would work. He'd get a job. He'd make shoes. And every town he paid the people he owed money to that he had cheated. He paid 70, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 accounts. And when he was paying off the last one, he sold his horse, his saddle, and his bridle. So that when he got done, he was back to zero. Now that's fruit consistent with repentance. That's proof that your life has been changed. That's proof that something has happened in your life. And that's what John says the religious leaders had better do. There better be some changes, but they're not going to repent. They're not going to do a right about faith. They're not going to go the other way. Why? Look at verse 9. Verse 9. And do not assume that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, the religious leaders believed they were going to go to heaven because they were the descendants of Abraham. They felt that Abraham had lived such a godly life. He was so holy. They believed that Abraham before God had earned enough merit for himself to earn heaven and anybody that would be his descendant. All of them, all of his descendants would go to heaven because he had enough merit before God to pay not only for himself, but for the whole family. And so John is teaching the religious leaders, hey guys, Virtue is not like land. It's not inheritable. You don't, you don't get it in the will. Your parents don't pass it on to you. Our dead ancestors cannot buy us merit. We're not potatoes. Uh, the best part of us is not what's buried underground. Our only hope is to repent for us ourselves, not based on what our parents did, not based on our family, not based on what others did. No, the only hope for these leaders was not to have Abraham's DNA, but to have his faith based on repentance. And sadly, they were not going to repent. And I promise you, the lost people that you know, the people that you know who are not Christ followers, the one thing in life they do not want to do is do an about faith. Do you realize? Do you understand? That for an adult, let's just talk about adults, but for an adult to become a Christian, they have to admit that they have been wrong every minute of every hour of every day of their life. For them to be saved, they have to completely turn around and go in opposite direction. They don't want to do that. Hey, you don't like to admit to your wife that you were wrong. Wives, you don't like to admit to your husband that you were wrong. Imagine asking somebody to admit that every hour of every day of their life they have been wrong. So since they don't want to do that, they'll make up all kinds of excuses. And i tell you, lost people, they're prolific at it. They'll they'll talk about hypocrites. Uh, Then they'll say, God loves us too much to send anybody to hell. Then they'll say they're respectable. They're, they're, They're on their own. They're living a good life. They keep the Ten Commandments. They live by the golden rule. Um, Augustine, was it Augustine said, Augustine said all the things that we do to try to earn heaven. He called those our splendid sins. Or I like to say our sins dressed up in Sunday clothes, trying to impress God. See, but lost of people say that they, they all know some Christian they're better than. And so they'll say, well, I live a respectable life. Then there are some who say, I've got plenty of time. I'm too young. I don't want to deal with that now. I'll decide later. Others of other them point to their baptism. There's some of you in this room right now think you're going to go to heaven because you were baptized. Then sometimes they'll say, I don't need to make a change because I go to church occasionally. Every once in a while I show up, maybe just a habit, but still they show up and they feel there's something of being a church member, going to church that makes it okay. They hate to repent. Every lost person you know hates to repent. They do not want to admit they've been wrong their whole lives. Plus, let me tell you the second reason why they don't want to repent. Without exception. Now, I'm sure there are exceptions out there. But in my years of trying to win lost people to Christ, not only do they not want to admit they've been wrong their whole life, almost always, at least every case I've known of, they don't want to repent because there is one sin in particular they don't want to give up. They have a pet sin, something that they don't want to quit. One of our greatest Christians of all time was John Bunyan. He's the one that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the most important book ever written, second only to the Bible. And John Bunyan was a terrible sinner. He was profane, vulgar, everything you could imagine. But people tried to win him to the Lord, and one day he was playing a game called Tip Cat. Tip Cat's an ancestor of baseball where you have a stick like a broom, and they throw a piece of wood, a small piece of wood at you, and you hit the piece of wood and see how far you can hit it. And he was on the city square one day playing tip cat. He had the broom in his hand. He's hitting the tip cat, and all of a sudden, he froze in place. People thought something was wrong with him. He suddenly stopped. And what happened was, people had been dealing with him and talking to him about his life, and he said he heard a voice in his head. They said, will you leave your sins and go to heaven, or will you keep your sin and go to hell? And he froze in place. Now, fortunately, he decided to leave his sin and go to heaven. But it's always a good question to ask. If you have someone you're trying to to the Lord, a family member, if someday you could just be totally open with them, and you talk to them about turning around, you're talking about the right about face, going the opposite direction, Talk to them also about what they think they would have to give up to become a Christian. And you'll start getting awfully close. You have to find what tasty morsel it is that they would have to give up to follow Jesus. And somehow at that point, you begin to share with them that whatever they feel they would have to give up, it's worth the risk that their only hope is to do a right about face to give up their pet sin. Now listen to me, listen before I leave this thought. It is absolutely essential that a person repent, do a right about face. Because you cannot go to heaven when you're walking on the road to hell. If your life is moving in the direction of hell, and the Bible says he that believeth not is condemned already. Unbelievers are already on their way to hell. They're already going that way. They cannot be saved on the road to hell. As long as they go that way, they're going to go to hell. Their only hope is to do an about face, repent. And then what else did John tell them? He pointed them to Jesus. He said, you've got to turn around and you've got to go to Jesus. And you can't go to Jesus if you've got a pet sin, you won't give up. So that's what Jesus said to these religious leaders. He said, you've got to do an about face you got to give your life to Jesus. You've got to prove that you've truly been changed. Now, well, the rest of this sermon, I'm going to deal with controversy. Now, I made a promise to the Lord when I was a teenager that I would never avoid controversy. Just because something's controversial, I would not avoid it. And I've tried to keep that promise. And I've tried through the years to be very careful, and I've worked very hard on what I'm getting ready to tell you for these next uh, 10 to 15 minutes. So I want you to stay with me. You're not going to agree with everything I say. It's impossible for all of you to agree with everything I'm going to say in the next 10 to 15 minutes. If you do have a problem with what I say, please talk to Hosey Blue. You know, <laughs> my friend, does the same thing to me, so I'll tell you, just talk to Hosey. That's fine. That's right. Here we go. John the Baptist is my hero, as you know. I was named for him. You understand that? My dad preached about him in my ordination. But one of the things we have to be careful about when we study John the Baptist is he was harsh. He was gruff. And occasionally you hear somebody who's a little bit unkind, a little bit mean And they will say, well, John the Baptist was that way. And he obviously was that way. I mean, it's obvious that John the Baptist never read the book that changed my life. Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. If you've never read it, teenagers, you need to read that book. How to Win Friends and Influence People. It changed my life. It made me a better person all around. Well, John the Baptist obviously had never read Dale Carnegie's book. John could be bad-tempered, and he was razor-edge sharp. Therefore, we would be wise to understand that we are not to imitate everything that John did. He's a good role model in certain areas, but not in others. You don't get extra points if you act like he did in everything that he did. So here's where the controversy starts. Blessed is the believer who could read the Bible and distinguish between the descriptive and prescriptive. Here's where the controversy starts. Blessed is the believer who can read the Bible and distinguish between what's just a description of something as opposed to what's a prescriptive, something that's required. Something that you learn from and you look at, but you don't have to do it as opposed to a command Or something you are expected to do. There are many things in the Bible that are a depiction. And you're not necessarily supposed to imitate it. And one of those would be John's bad temper. That's descriptive. That's something that happened in that culture. In that given situation. That day. There are a lot of things in the Bible. That provide details of an event for us. But they don't necessarily mean that we have to do Those things. Now, on the other hand, there are plenty of Bible commands. There are 64 straightforward commands in the book of James, and it's only 104 verses long. So there's plenty of commands. But as a believer, when you come to the Bible, as you're reading the Scriptures, you're reading a story, an event, you're reading some discussion, you're reading in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, now, is this descriptive Or is this prescriptive? Is it just describing something I don't necessarily have to act like? Or is this something I really need to do? For instance. All right, here we go. You got your piece of paper to write on? If you don't have it, write on the sleeve of the person sitting next to you. Because you're going to want to follow up on this. Many things in the Bible are not meant to be repeated. For instance, Jesus told the rich young ruler, go sell all you have and give to the poor. When was the last time you had someone come to you and so say they wanted to become a Christ follower and you said to them, well, Jesus said you have to go sell all you have and give it to the poor. You see, we don't require this of people. Why? Because it's descriptive, not Prescriptive, Jesus was dealing with that situation. To replace Judas Iscariot, what did the apostles do? They prayed, but then they did what? They cast lots. My guess is, few of you in this room, after you have prayed, decide what the will of God is by drawing straws, flipping a coin, or rolling the dice. That's what they did. By the way, I do have a friend just in all honesty and all openness, who when he prays about making a decision, once he prays, if, if he feels like his heart is open to whatever God wants, he will throw dice. He will do this. Not because it's prescriptive, not because it's forced upon him, but he thinks that it's, it's, if the disciples are good enough for them, he will do it. But he understands it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And we're not done yet. <laughs> all right. The early believers shared everything that they had to minister to one another. You cannot understand the New Testament without believing. They they gave their land. They gave houses. They they gave everything they had. But uh, I don't think any of us in this room has ever expected anybody to renounce their private property rights. Therefore, we have to say that's descriptive, telling us what happened. It's describing something, but it's not prescriptive. It's not required of us. All right, let's keep going. Jesus was baptized in a river. There are people, every once in a while, when they get saved, they want to be baptized in a river. I don't mind that at all. That's fine. I think that's okay. As long as we understand they're doing it just because they want to, not because they're commanded to. They want to be like Jesus. Many of you in this room probably were baptized outside somewhere, in a creek, a pond. That's okay. But it's just descriptive, not prescriptive. At the Last Supper, my grandson Ian, as I told you, is for the first time in his life today going to offer the Lord's Supper. No one will have their feet washed at that service, but our Master, when he did the first Lord's Supper, he washed feet. There are some of you in this room, probably, if you're a General Baptist or Free Will Baptist, Nazarene, Salvation Army, some of those groups, if you have Lord's Supper with them. They'll want to wash your feet, and probably some of you have been in those services. Uh, Some of those believe that it's required. They believe it's prescriptive, but most of them think it's just descriptive. Then it gets very difficult. There are passages like, where Paul said to the Corinthians, it's a disgrace for a man to have long hair. Well, we obviously don't enforce that. that. That's not a big deal to us. Obviously, there was something going on in Corinth that Paul, when he wrote that, the people at Corinth, they immediately knew, well, we know what he's referring to, something going on down to the pagan temple or something that we no longer know about. In fact, as you study the Bible, many times the things that are the hardest for us to understand are the things that were easiest to understand by the original readers because they knew exactly what the person was talking about. Like, for instance, Paul said that women should always wear hats, have something over their head. Then he said that women should keep silent in the churches three chapters after he says if a woman preaches, she needs to have a hat on. And when he wrote that, obviously, he's, he, there's something that's going on in Corinth. You know, the prostitutes, maybe they didn't have anything on their head, but we, we don't know. It is to distinguish something was going on in Corinth because even Paul himself is speaking almost in riddles here. In the one passage in 1 Corinthians 11, he's saying if a woman prays or preaches without a hat on, then uh, that's a disgrace. But then three chapters later, he says she should be silent totally. And uh, well, we don't, Sherry wasn't paying attention to that this morning. I mean, obviously. We don't, we, somehow, somehow Christians, we don't know what's descriptive, what's prescriptive, what to believe. What not believe, where was he going to put, drive the nail down? I don't care what liberals think. People who don't believe the Bible, I couldn't care less what they think about these. But other conservative Christians, like the Nazarenes, the Assemblies of God, who have women preachers and so forth and so on and all that, as long as conservatives believe something, I have to at least always be humble. I don't have to agree with them, but I have to always be humble. Trying to figure out what's descriptive, what's prescriptive. What was he talking about here? Four times. Now, folks, did you hear me? Four times, Paul the Apostle commanded us to greet each other with a holy kiss. We could call that the COVID moment. (laughs) Four times. And the church split right down the middle. The Eastern church. They still do this. They greet each other with a kiss on the cheek. The Eastern Church, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, the Eastern Church. But the Western Church, that's us, we do not do that. Why? We feel there was something in the symbolism. He wasn't so much concerned about the kissing and putting the lips on somebody's cheek or whatever as he was trying to make a statement. And so Christians in the Western part of the world, we developed the handshake. The hand where there's no weapon in your hand. To extend your hand to someone. It's a symbol of peace. It's a statement of the family touching one another. So we opted for the handshake. So we we decided that what Paul was talking about was descriptive, not prescriptive. But the Eastern Church, they felt it's prescriptive and not descriptive. Now, so that brings us back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached under a burden and under a calling that you and I do not have. So we had to be very careful when we try to imitate the way John was. He's a good example. My daddy preached about him at my ordination, using him as an example. But he didn't tell me to be rough and he didn't tell me to be mean. He talked about the about faith and about pointing people to Jesus and being humble, those kinds of things. So there are some things we copy, some things we don't. Now let me tell you what can happen if we're not careful. When I first got married, Ruthie and I had some friends. He was a pastor. And he evidently decided that he was going to imitate John the Baptist a little bit too much. And so he, one Sunday night, in the middle of a worship service, prayed that God would strike his chairman of deacons dead. They physically ran him out the building, and he was never allowed back in again. So what I'm saying is, we have to be prudent. There was nothing gained by him being harsh and rough like John the Baptist. So, what should we do when we come to imitate John the Baptist? Should we imitate his camel clothing? Um, First time I ever saw Ruthie, she was wearing a camel hair coat. And when she got pregnant, she said, now we know it's a one hump camel. Anyway, okay, all right. So, Ruthie said that. I didn't say that. Ruthie said that, all right. All right. Do we imitate his camel clothing? Do we imitate his diet of locusts? Do we preach only in a river? Do we want to be beheaded to die? No. So, when we come to this point, we're looking at the life of John the Baptist. What do we want to imitate? We want to imitate the fact that he told people, you can't go to heaven when you're walking on the road to hell. You've got to repent. You've got to do a right about face. You've got to turn 180 degrees. We imitate him and say to people, you've got to turn. And then we tell them what to turn to. He not only told them to turn, he told them to turn to Jesus. And you can only turn to Jesus if you'll renounce your sin. The sin has to go, the pet sin. So that's what we imitate. And I just thought this would be a good occasion for us to talk about that larger issue. Be careful when you're reading the scripture. You have to determine what's descriptive versus what's prescriptive. And that's a tough one. Okay, that's all for today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Put all your notes and everything away and let's go to prayer. One of the problems that I learned as a pastor is people want the Christian life to be easy. Once again, that's, that's what I told you. That's why they make rules. And that's why they, they'll come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and they don't read them very close. They just run past them because you got to really think. you got to be careful. You have to, what in the world is he talking about here? That kind of thing. But that's not the way it is to be a Christian is to constantly live in the presence of God, saying, Lord, you're going to have to help me understand this. You're going to have to teach me here. You're going to help me not to do something foolish. You're going to tell me be wise in how I interpret this. Rather than making broad general statements and rules and legalism, instead you walk in the Spirit. You walk in His presence. And you're constantly saying, what should I do here in this case How should I handle this? How should I handle that? And what worked in Corinth didn't work in Ephesus. And what worked in Philippi didn't work in Colossae. People are just finding their way, and that's what you have to do. Study the Scriptures. And then ask the Lord to give you wisdom how to interpret. Now, while Christians pray, may I speak to unbelievers? If you do not know Jesus as your Savior... Somebody at work might have said something this week or school or there might be something in the music this morning, even something in the message, even though the message was geared primarily to save people, but I did talk to lost people about the right about faith, leaving a pet sin, maybe something has caused you now to come to a place that you're ready to yield your life to Jesus. Now, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You're going to pray silently something I'm going to pray aloud. And if you're true, if you're genuine, if you mean it, if you are sincere in your heart of hearts, then you will be saved today. You will be a new creature. And then you will prove it by a changed life. Not a perfect life. Nope. Nope, not a perfect life. But you'll sense the difference. You'll know the change and the people around you will see it. So if you're willing to make that decision now, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to pray it out loud, phrase by phrase. You pray it silently. Here it is. Dear Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen.